Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. Good morning, everyone. Thank you guys for being here. Um, We were... Uh, Shelby and I were gone last Sunday, and I think that's the first Sunday that we've missed, uh, I don't know, maybe ever, I don't know. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> we, uh, we are very, um, we don't usually travel on the weekends, but, um, but yeah, so we, we missed you all. Uh, I was invited by my brother-in-law to, to help, uh, I got to play piano at a church, and it was just weird, you know, it's weird being with other people. And it's good, you know, they're all saved, they're all the family of God, but it's just, it was, I, I don't know, I kept expecting to see you guys walk through the door and you weren't there, and I was sad, you know. Um, but we're here now, um, and uh, this morning, um, uh, this past week was, was pretty long for us, and it was, it was different, and so this morning I, I'm doing something that I, I don't really recall doing before, but we were at something called uh, Network Council this past week. And um, so it's like uh, within our, our network of churches, there's like uh, a bunch. I wish I had a better number than a bunch, but there's like a bunch all over Colorado and Utah. And so we all came together at a big church in Aurora. And, um, and it was just a time where there's a little bit of business, but it was a lot of prayer. It was a lot of encouraging. It was a lot of hanging out with friends sharing experiences, and just being able to encourage each other. And it was uh, really very encouraging. But um, if you guys know anything about me, I'm, I'm a pretty scheduled person. And so if I don't have like all my ducks in a row, it really starts to make me a little anxious. And so I didn't have my regular office time to, to do my regular routine. And so I was like writing a sermon in between stuff in chunks and, and, I, and I got probably the good skeleton of a message about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God, not just as a destination that like, all right, so I'm saved. So now I'll go to the kingdom of God when I die. And that's, I guess, what the whole beginning of the New Testament is about. Um, it's not that <laughs> the kingdom of God is the way of Jesus. It is eternal life starting today. It's not just something that happens when you die, but it's something that Jesus prayed for to be present on the earth now. Um, then I got home, and I listened to Nate's message, so if any of you are podcast listeners, and you're like, where the heck is the podcast? I'm the one that does that, so I wasn't here, and so uh, it didn't happen until like Thursday night, <laughs> so sorry about that, but um, I listened to his message, and, uh, and he shared a great word, if you weren't here, go back and listen to it, about what you're saved for. That you're not just saved so that way uh, you can, uh, we've been throwing around the term like a monopoly sort of term, like you can get a get out of hell free card. And then you're just like, well, I guess I don't have to suffer in death anymore, but I just have to wait until I die and just suffer until then. But like uh, that you're actually saved for a purpose, that God actually unites us with his vision for all of creation and we get to be a part of the family business, so to speak. And so I listened to his message, and there were a couple moments where he was, like, real angry, and his, like, uh, waveform and the audio was, like, real high, and he was really intense. I hope you all enjoyed that. And I was like, I don't know if that's necessarily, I don't know if my message necessarily follows that very well. And I think the Lord cares about those kinds of things. So I prayed, and I considered. And and it's funny, I'm actually taking a message that I preached about a year ago um, at a different church, 
and reworking it for our purposes. It was amazing going through my notes how many things I was like wrong about <laughs> and I had to correct, and that was only a year ago. Imagine what God can do. Um, and I'm, even today, I'll preach this next year and be like, what, what was I talking about right there? Um, no, I'm just kidding. But anyways, um, generally speaking, the Western evangelical church that we are a part of that tradition doesn't really pay a lot of attention to like a historical church calendar, you know, like, um, and, and maybe I shouldn't speak generally because that is probably irresponsible, but I can speak definitely personally. This church, as long as I've been here, hasn't really paid attention to a church calendar. Nate always shares that funny story about how he forgot Easter one year. Um, and, and I don't think that's like something that you should like judge us on and condemn us and write a Yelp review. It's like, man, they don't even keep the, the high Jewish holidays or something like that. But, but the reality is, it's something that I think there's a tendency in, in, uh, in my life and probably in your life that we like to fast forward through the bits that we don't like and just get to the highlights. We like to get to the good stuff. And sometimes the church calendar can sound so clinical and boring, but when we're dealing with the life of Jesus and the history of the church, it has massive weight on our lives today. And so... We're actually in a named season for a historical church calendar, and that season is called Eastertide, which really just means uh, the time between Easter and between the ascension of Jesus. And we have kind of piggybacked on the end um, the uh, 10 days between the ascension of Jesus and uh, the Feast of Weeks or the Pentecost Feast. And so I feel like as I was praying that there's a lot of wisdom that we can draw from this season that I think will be really encouraging to you, I think has been really encouraging to me, and I hope can propel us, can, can provoke us to, to love the Lord and to follow him. So I just want to, if you would indulge me for a moment, I just want to paint a picture, not literally, that would be a disaster. I want to paint a mental picture of what it would be like if we were rewinding to this season, this time of history, in kind of the first generation of the church. That only, like, technically Orthodox Easter was this past Sunday, but, like, American Easter, I don't know how exactly that works, was the Sunday before. So we're just a couple, we're like a week off from this very significant event. And you can imagine, like here in Israel, it's like springtime. It's like 77% humidity because they're right on a major body of water. And in Jerusalem, this ancient, complicated, glorious city, there is just so much emotion. You were probably one of those brave people that trusted in this strange man from Nazareth of all places. You trusted that he was the one that the scriptures talked about, really from the very beginning, because he did things that were so remarkable. Guys, the way that he spoke was just unbelievable, but you believed him. That's <laughs> weird words. Um, and the things that he did, no one had ever done before, and you were just blown away. And for the first time in your life, you had hope because you walk into Jerusalem for Passover like you probably did year after year after year. But this year was different. There was energy in the air. 
It wasn't just this ancient ritual that you'd kept because your family had kept it and your family's family had kept it. There was something that was happening. Every year, people would sing, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord because that's what you're supposed to sing. But people were excited this year. Somebody different was in town. Something was happening. You could feel it. As Jews from all around the diaspora are coming into this holy city, you could feel that something significant was about to happen. And you betrayed your logic and you hoped for a moment that this was something real. And then this wonderful, strange man from Nazareth of all places was brutally humiliated and murdered in front of everyone. And you find yourself probably breaking out in tears randomly because <laughs> you're mad. I trusted him. And, and I still kind of do. But we're not even dealing with doubt at this point because on the testimony of many witnesses, he is surely dead, unrecognizably beaten, stabbed on the cross, suffocated under the weight of his own body. He is dead. You saw them take him away, and now you're wandering the city, waiting to go home, and you don't know what to do. Now what? Who was he? All that stuff seems so special. Who am I? What do I do? Am I a heretic now? Can I even go back to synagogue? What do I do? I mean, throngs of people, thousands of people followed him. And when he was on the cross, he was alone. You couldn't show up. That was scary. What if they affiliated you with him? Oh my gosh, even his closest friends weren't there. Save his mom and probably John. And his brothers and sisters, because they probably had to be. And now you're there, and you're, you're wandering around, and you feel this emotion, and it's like tightness in your shoulders, and, and you just feel anxious, and you don't know what to do. You're a little afraid, but more, more than that, it's hope deferred. And a great poet once said, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Now what? To make matters worse, there are some people that were close to Jesus that are saying they saw him. Can you believe that? I mean, we all mourn in different ways, but come on. Let the man die. We all saw him die. And they're, they're saying, no, we went to the tomb. After the Sabbath, we went there, and it was empty. The guards were routed, nowhere to be found, and the tomb was clean and empty. I mean, what do you do with this kind of information? How, do you, how are you supposed to feel? This has never happened before. We're not dealing with this. What about Lazarus? Where the heck is he? Like, what is going on? Can you imagine the frustration, the sorrow of being a disciple of Jesus in this hour? We, we uh, were with a, a pastor. Um, he's like a, a leader uh, for our organization on a national level. And he described it. It's like, if I was in the room, I'd be like, what the junk? What do I do? My whole life, I quit my job. I, I, I left my, like, everything that I knew. And all of my plans and all of my hope have been pulverized, just like the body of the man that I trusted. What do I do? And in this Eastertide, 
this time in between, I think there's actually a pretty dynamic parallel that we can align ourselves with. Because where we live today is kind of similar, but uh, I don't know, maybe this is irresponsible to say, a little bit worse. Because I can tell you with confidence today that Jesus did rise from the dead. And I can tell you with confidence, not on my own knowledge or intellect, but on, on faith and my loyalty to Jesus, that he is truly risen from the dead, never to die again. And that if you believe on him and you trust him, that you too will never die, that you will have life eternal with him. All the suffering of this life will not undo what he has done, and it's finished. But life is still hard. I, I recorded a couple videos of people in the church like sharing their testimonies. We want to do more of those. We're going to use those on Easter, and we ended up not using them because of like time and and I, your videos were so beautiful, I didn't want to cut out parts of your testimony or anything like that. But almost everybody, when I asked, like, what is life like with Jesus? They're like, it's hard. <laughs> it's not easy. And I was like, thank you for saying that. Because if you were like, man, I'm rich now. Like, everything is just worked out. I've never doubted a day in my life. Everything's sick. Like, if you said that, then I probably wouldn't use your video. Because that's just not real. That's just not how life works, right? And... And this, this season that we're in, this in-between, this, this, this tide that we find ourselves in today is that we have a promise that the gospel doesn't just say that Jesus saves you from um, wrath today, or he doesn't just save you in, in, from wrath when you die, but that he is actually coming back to earth to correct all injustice, that God has a plan, and this is not it. What is going on in the world is not God just being like, heh. This is funny. Like, I'm just going to hurt people, and, and people are going to be mistreated, and people are going to be oppressed, and there's going to be lies and dissension, and there's going to be division and all this hardship. That is not what God had in mind when he designed the human race, but man has estranged themselves from God and created the world that we now live in. But Jesus promises that there will be a day when he will wipe away every tear, that he will bring an end to the greatest enemy, the enemy that everyone falls to, that is death, will die and suffer in the pit with the devil and the dragon. Can you believe this? But doesn't that create the same sort of tension where it's like, great, I'm saved, but now what? It's a long while. And for some time, the church has pretended that everything is okay and suffering isn't real and you feel fine. I'm fine. I'm, I'm fine. And, and eventually those words don't sound like words anymore. And you realize, like, I haven't lamented in a while. I don't know how to hurt well. And I think there's some wisdom from the disciples and from Jesus on how we can navigate this in between. Because I'm not trying to lie to you. And if you're not following Jesus today, it's like, wow, what do you want me to sign up for? This sounds awful. I'm not, like, signing you up for, like, melancholy weirdness. I'm, 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 I'm assured that there is joy in the Lord, but that does not negate the hardship of life. And Jesus himself, who was a man that was anointed with the oil of joy, the Psalms say, he still lamented, he still struggled, and he promised us that there would be struggles. He strong, promised us that, that there, there would be evil in this world and they would try to hurt us. And even if he didn't say that, I think we could all kind of parse that out pretty simply. Maybe you guys are like, I don't know what you're talking about. Life is super chill all the time. So I want to look at a story 
from the scriptures. If you would open your Bible to Luke 24. This is the last chapter of, of uh, Luke's biography of Jesus. I think there's a story of a couple disciples um, who aren't like remarkably unique people. They're, only one of them is named, and they're not like inner circle people. We don't get that kind of idea. But um, they had an encounter with Jesus that was so important to the oral tradition that they're like, we need to include this in the history of Jesus because this is going to be very significant to our understanding of him. Luke 24, um, our context is, this is uh, a little bit closer than I was describing where we're at now. This is probably Sunday. This is probably the same day that Jesus rose from the dead, and, and these, these testimonies are starting to, to wiggle out of these women that went there and saw angels and, and all these sort of things. But these two disciples are, are a lot in the situation that we were, we were trying to paint the picture of earlier, where they are disappointed and frustrated and scared. And they have to walk seven miles back home, and they're just talking about this. They can't get it out of their minds. They can't, they can't like, well, maybe we should just talk about the, the game. You know, I don't know. Like, what, what else do we talk about? This is the most important person that's ever lived, and he's gone. Now what? What do we do? Does the movement die with the leader? Like, I thought he was going to be the king like, of Israel. I thought, what do we do? So let's pick up with those, those two um, in verse 13. And behold... Two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about these things which had taken place. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes prevented, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. We talked about this in Deeper Project a couple weeks ago in a different story. I don't know how that works. <laughs> Jesus does it a couple times where he's like right there and people are like, like, when, when Mary's in the tomb, and she's like, oh, this must be the gardener. So it's like, we were like, is he in his glorified, like, glowing Jesus fire eye? No. I don't think I've ever seen a gardener like that. <laughs> and it's like, I don't know. It's like, maybe this is something different in the ancient culture that all gardeners had eyes with fire and swords coming out of their mouth. But I don't think that's what was happening. I don't know how it works. Their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And some people like to think that Jesus isn't funny, that he's, like, really stoic and boring, like me. And, um... But the reality is, like, he's kind of being playful here. Because what I would do if I was him, which is a strange, weird thought process to be in, is I'd be like, you guys are sad. Stop being sad. I'm here. It's true. But he's like, what are you guys talking about? <laughs> Listen to this. Verse 17. What are these words you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? He just interrupts their conversation. And they're not like sitting at a coffee shop or at a communal table, like in a cafeteria. They're walking apparently alone. And he's just like, what, what, what is this that you're talking about? How rude. That'd be so awkward, right? I don't know. That, I think that's probably Middle Eastern hospitality that they just entertain this thought. But they're also a little shocked. One of them, verse 18 says, named Cleopas, great baby name, answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? Genuine response. Like, everyone's talking about this. Everyone was excited about this. Now everyone is sad. How do you not know? And he said to them, what things? <laughs> and they said to him, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who is a prophet mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people. And how the chief priest delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. And listen to this. This is just so genuine and so honest. But we were hoping 
that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all of this, it's the third day since these things happened. And to make matters worse, there were some women that amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and they didn't find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was still alive. And we don't know if we can trust those women. So we sent some men. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it exactly as the women had said. But they didn't see him. But him they did not see. And they were confused and understandably sad. And sometimes we like to poke fun at, at disciples in the first generation where it's like, come on. They didn't have the end of the book, you guys. They're still figuring it out as they go. I think one of the most shocking things about reading the Bible is that everyone was surprised. Everyone was shocked about Jesus. And so let's all lower ourselves down humbly really quick, and let's, let's allow ourselves to be surprised at what he does. Allow ourselves to be amazed at him again. Not just like, oh, that's what Jesus does. We'll pray for somebody and their, their back will get healed and that's just what Jesus does, I guess. Let, let us be amazed again. Let us like try and, and have some faith. I know that seems like uh, counterintuitive, but so often we let the hardness of this life keep us from actually being amazed and shocked by Jesus. So Jesus pipes in and he finally does some talking and he explains everything, which just feels so confusing, right? Where, like, you didn't even know what we were talking about. Now you're about to tell us what's what. Verse 25, oh foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. How rude, right? Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Verse 27 says, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. That everyone, the people who were the most trusted, the most versed in the scriptures, everyone was surprised. And yet, you know how Jesus explains what happened with the very same scriptures. Isn't that amazing? That you can read the Old Testament and be scared and bored, and Jesus is saying, I was there the whole time. And yet, everyone was surprised by the hope that I brought. Everyone was surprised at the way that I did it. The least to the smartest were all shocked at the way that he did it. And yet he was able to explain himself perfectly by using the covenants that they had celebrated for generations. Generations, since the beginning. I have this quote from a, a guy named Robert Stein. He wrote a wonderful book called Jesus the Messiah. And uh, towards the end he wrote this. The crucifixion was not some tragic mistake or human derailment of what God intended. On the contrary, as Jesus taught at the Last Supper, the betrayal that led to the cross lay completely within the sovereign plan of God. Jesus went to the cross willingly, knowing that it was God's plan. His hour had come. And this is just potent to me this morning, that all that frustration, all that sorrow, Jesus wasn't afraid of that. That for me, it's like, uh, this is like a leadership nugget. Are you ready for this? I learned this from someone else. If you're going to criticize somebody, you need to sandwich it. Do you, have you heard this before? So say like, Jack, great t-shirt. I have this one thing to point out, but man, you're such a nice guy. You, you sandwich it. So you do a good thing, 
a hard thing, a good thing. And then they're like confused and then they feel edified, I guess. I'm not sure. I'm not very good at this. Um, I'm not very good at confrontation, period. So I usually just have Nate handle those things. Um, <laughs> and But you look at this is that Jesus isn't afraid to make them feel things. And I think a lot of times we're trying to fast forward through the morning. We're trying to fast forward through the frustration and the sorrow and just get to like, Jesus, please just come back. I was sharing with the folks that were here for prayer this morning that I was convicted that I was a youth pastor here for years, and every Sunday night we're praying for revival and awakening, that God would touch every single pubescent teenager in this town and just save them. Just, just knock them down and pick them up. Do it, God. You can do it. Anything's possible. It takes one encounter with God to make it happen. And the Lord has convicted me about that over the last couple of years, that it's like, Adam, what you're asking for is to cut corners. You don't want to go through the messy painful process of discipleship. You'd rather them just wake up one morning and be mature. And then the Lord asked me difficult questions like, is that how it works for you? And I was like, no. People have had to be patient with me for a decade, for a decade now that I've, that I've been trying to follow Jesus and been wrong most of the time. And he's like, what are, you, what are you hoping for then? Why are you actually praying for me to move in power? And I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for revival. We shouldn't pray for awakening. We shouldn't pray for the spirit to move. But guys, we shouldn't try to cut corners. If that's you in your life where it's like, man, I'm going to follow Jesus once I, I don't know, once I just kind of figure out something, once I just cross this one hurdle, then I'm going to be good. It's like once I can stop losing my temper with my children, then I'm going to be a great disciple of Jesus. It's never going to happen. Without God's grace and him blessing your children, it's never going to happen. You have to be committed to the process. I love, there's this pastor that I listen to all the time, and he said this thing. He's like, I believe that it's God's will to heal you every single time. But sometimes it's suddenly like that, and we all get excited and and have a potluck and get stoked. And sometimes it's long. He's going to restore you. He's going to help you. He doesn't just want you to hurt, but sometimes he's going to take you through the painful, dirty process of family to get you to point B. And we have to be willing to do that. We have to be willing to mourn and say, I'm not okay. I think there's going to be a profound testimony in this generation that the church can say, no, I'm not okay, but I still trust Jesus. No, everything isn't working out. That thing that you were praying for me for, nothing has happened yet, but I still trust Jesus. Because what's that going to say to the world, the unbelieving, those who are not yet disciples, what's that going to say to them? What that is going to say to them is, this Jesus is real. He's not a genie in a lamp that just gives you everything you want, but he's actually a loving friend. He's actually a good father that is leading you and helping you. That even when you're lacking, even when you're suffering, even when there isn't enough, you still trust him. That's not a testimony to you. I don't have that capacity. And I'm just just throwing out a line here. I don't think you do either. But it's that Jesus is that trustworthy that when you're missing everything and you're lonely, that Jesus is enough. Isn't that profound? That's our hope. So Jesus does this wild thing, and he pretends like he's going to keep walking. This is Luke 24 again. Just, I, I, just to see what they'll do. They're, they've been talking now for uh, several miles, and if you, they walk anything like me, it's taken hours. 
<laughs> I walked around the Riverwalk the other day, and it took me an hour. I don't know, some of you run that in 10 minutes, and I, it took me forever. Um, don't laugh at me. Um, and so he's, he's pretending like he's going somewhere else. And at this point, the, these, two, uh, these two disciples are, are pretty hooked. They haven't really, to our knowledge, asked, so who are you? What's your deal? Why do you know all this stuff? Why are you pretending like you don't and then all of a sudden you do? Like, how is it that I haven't met you yet? <laughs> like, we've all been around the, the general Jesus movement. Like, what, who are you? They haven't, to our knowledge, they haven't asked that. But they do insist, you have to come with us. The Bible actually says they cling to him, that they insist. And that is so scary to me. Because what we can draw from this is it's not outside of God's character to keep going. Like we're having sweet fellowship and we're spending time with him. And he's like, all right, well, I'm going to keep going. And he tests us that we insist and persist that he stays. Do you remember this teaching on prayer? Have you heard this? That he compares prayer to in the middle of the night, you have some friends visit, so you need some bread. So you go to your neighbor, you knock on the door. Your neighbor's like, I'm asleep, go away. Totally legitimate. For me, the story ends there. I probably don't even get out of bed. I probably just, <laughs> I'm sorry I don't have bread. We'll go to the coffee shop tomorrow morning. We'll pick something up. I'm so sorry. You're going to have to be hungry for right now. But he continues to bother his neighbor until they open the door. And Jesus compares this to prayer. He's like, even if it's not because of friendship that he opens the door, you'll annoy him enough. And I was like, God, this is not the sweet fellowship that I remember from IHOP KC. This is not the, the loving beholding in the prayer room with wonderful singers and musicians. This is persistence. And I don't think God is asking you to annoy him, but what he's asking you to is persevere. That's not any slight towards IHOP KC. I love IHOP KC. But it's like we like to paint prayer like it's, it's easy if you just do it right. Jesus is promising you, it's hard if you do it right. It'll take some time, and we want to fast forward. I was talking about that in prayer this morning, that prayer meetings here often for the first 45 minutes are really quiet. Sometimes you'll hear some speaking in tongues over here and some, some, some louder prayer, some people journaling, and, and I get it. Some of you haven't come or have come once because it's boring, but you're, and, and I am trying to fast forward that we don't want to wait on the Lord. We want to be served the Lord McDonald's style. Like he's been waiting in a microwave and under a heat lamp, ready to serve up something for us. And he's saying, would you just wait? Would you be patient? Do you treat any other institution in your life like this? And the answer is yes. If I go to a restaurant and they tell me it's a 30 minute wait, I would rather eat almost anywhere else. I, we went to a restaurant uh, with some pastors this past week, and um, we had to wait because we got there early, whatever. My problem. I can't get anywhere late. Um, and so we sit down, and I, I, I kid you not, it was maybe like seven minutes. Like We hadn't been talked to by a, a waiter yet, and the waitress comes up, and she's just so apologetic. She's like, I'm so sorry you had to wait. And I was like, did we have to wait? And she's like, do you want an appetizer? And we're like, no, we're good. We'll just order food. And she's like, it's on us. Like, that absolutely we do. <laughs> absolutely. And I was just like, in what realm was that waiting? Because I've waited at restaurants before, and I don't want you to think I'm, like, super impatient and rude. But, like, uh, that was not waiting. 
But uh, another pastor that was with us, and I was like, judging on the prices on this menu, I don't think the, the, the general patrons wait. I think they, they are pretty, pretty insistent that they get served right away. And I was like, we're getting waters. Like, what do we, like it's not going to take you a long time. The kitchen's right there. I can see it. And she was afraid that we were going to be, like, mean to her because we had to wait, like, seriously seven minutes. And I think this is something to observe, you know? Like, this is something to notice. And so Jesus, in this story, pretends that he's going to keep going. And my non-confrontational self, I'll just throw myself under the bus. I'd be like, oh, no. Oh, I, I, okay. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. You seem like you're a busy person. I don't, I don't just, Go ahead. But these two disciples were real, and they're sincere, and they're authentic, and they're, they're bold, and they say, no, you have to come home with us. We'll make you dinner. You can spend the night. It's already getting late. Please come with us. So Jesus does. And I imagine him walking there in his supernaturally disguised self, smiling like, they did it. We worked it out. We got there. And Jesus is sitting there. He's still disguised. And they're, they're going through Jewish customs. They're reclining at the table. And Jesus does this thing where he takes the bread that was served to him and he breaks it and he gives it to them. And suddenly, something in that moment clicks. And they, they take a sigh and it's him. I don't know what it was about that moment. People have inflated this to say that like, when we take communion together, that we're actually seeing Jesus' face. I don't know if that's necessarily what they're trying to say here, but something about that broken bread given to them. It was something Jesus did many times in his life. They're like, oh my gosh, it's been him the whole time. And in that moment, the most remarkable thing happens. He disappears. <laughs> And I had this cringy thing written in my notes. I took it out. I'm going to say it anyways. <laughs> I looked it up in the Greek, you guys. Do you know what the word disappear means? <laughs> Vanish. Not like run away really quickly. <laughs> he, like cotton candy and water, he disappeared. <laughs> and and uh, we had this teacher, and he used to make a big, big deal about this. Like, if it was you, that would be the most fascinating part of the story. <laughs> that you would write a book, <laughs> that you would go on tour to the Vanishing Man conference and be like, I, I'm going to pray for you that I could impart that Jesus could vanish in front of you, you know? <laughs> like, and it's like, but, and I don't think this was lost on them, but as Jesus disappears, their conversation is not like, how come we didn't recognize him before? <laughs> what happened there? Or like, how did he just pff, disappear? Their conversation, look at it, in, in verse 32, <laughs> They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? That they told the story, you guys. This was part of oral tradition. They told this story. Eventually it got to Luke, and he's like, this is good stuff. We, be we better put this in the book. This is good stuff. And on reflecting, they're like, we remember that he disguised himself. We remember that he disappeared. But the thing that really, really shook us is the way that our hearts reacted to him talking about the Bible. And there's just a collective heart sigh where you're like, that's the end of the story? The Bible? But there's something that is so powerful when the Lord himself 
takes all the the cacophony and the chaos and the the webs of the threads of the Old Testament and all of history and weaves them together. The very author of the story weaves them all together to make this beautiful tapestry that exposes God and what he's up to, that exposes man and what he's like, and uses this dynamic, complicated, sometimes frustrating, sometimes boring and uninspiring story to tell the truth about everything that matters. And when God can speak to your heart that way, it will burn. Not acid reflux. Don't think acid reflux. Think a light turning on when you're squinting in the dark. Think going all day without food and then tasting that first morsel. This is like you've been thirsty and now you've gotten a drink. This is something that you cannot deny, that you cannot ignore. And I hesitate to say those kinds of things because reactions vary. And maybe it it doesn't seem like it when I'm talking up here and I'm all excited. Um, But like, I'm not a very emotional person. And I was sitting in a service of pastors screaming in tongues and crying, and I was like, man, I better start feeling something because <laughs> I'm just here. And honestly, that was convicting for me. It was like everybody else is feeling something, and I'm not feeling anything. I, Lord, don't let me be dry. Don't let me miss this moment. Forgive me. Have grace for me. I hope some of you are like that too. I, hope, I guess I hope some of you aren't like that, that you just feel all the things all the time. And I am an emotional person. Like I cry at movies all the time, but there's just sometimes that... Things are happening and people are feeling the Lord. And I'm like, uh, I want to. I really do. And I kind of have to press past that, that, that hurdle, so to speak. And it's amazing because we see this, this explaining of scriptures, this burning heart, this sort of thing, is actually the primary agenda of Jesus in this in-between season when so many people are, are without hope, when so many people are confused and discouraged, when there are so many people who haven't even heard about Jesus, much less that he died and rose again, that this is actually his primary agenda. Let's zoom out. Let's look at Acts chapter 1. Verse 3 says this, to these, being the disciples, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, uh, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And so we see this was the point that he didn't just ascend from the resurrection, that he actually spent 40 days, which is a long time. It doesn't sound like a long time, but when you like were dead and now you're not, that's a long time to just be walking around. And, and I think it's, it's shocking, and he's revealing himself to people. Like Paul would go on to say that he revealed himself to 500 people at the same time. And his primary agenda isn't just like, I'm alive, woohoo! But he's like, let me, let me tell you what's going on. And I love this about Jesus. And maybe some of you don't think about Jesus this way, but this is dear to my heart that Jesus explains things. Because I'm not a very, like, visual person. I I was talking about that walk I took at the river walk. That was, like, an exercise. Like, I've heard people say, like, if you're trying to be creative or you're trying to do something, take a walk. I was like, all right, I have my theme, what I want to talk about. So I'm going to go take a walk and, and mull it over. And I realized something that I've realized many times throughout my life. If I'm not actively doing something, my mind is basically blank. And I'm not thinking about anything. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to meditate on, on, on the Bible passages. And what my mind is doing is step, 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 
breeze, step, 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 stop, step, step. And like literally, I'm like, I'm not thinking about anything. The only thing I'm thinking about is I'm not thinking about anything. And I was like, Lord, help me, save me from myself. Like, what is going on right now? And that's just me. And people are like, what do you do when you're bored? Nothing. <laughs> I don't do anything. What are you going to do with your day off? Nate's like going to go climb a mountain and jump off a cliff with a snowmobile. I was like, I'm not going to do anything. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm literally going to do nothing. And I, and I have to use Bible verses and I have to use passages and I have to, like, even when somebody's talking to me, I, I have a hard time picturing things. So my, my mind is like karaoke. Like, I'm just picturing the words that they're saying. And, 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 it's, and it's, a, it's a hardship and it's, it's, a, it's a thing. But I'm so grateful that the Lord would love even somebody weird like me, and he'll explain what he's talking about. Because can you imagine sitting in the multitudes? He's giving away free food. He's healing people's sicknesses. It's awesome. And then he tells you some sort of story. And then uh, packs up and leaves. He tells you some sort of story where it's like, uh, there once was a shrewd manager who uh, he owed a debt, and then he paid it back. But then he had to be kind to people. I'm like, what? And some of them are pretty, pretty easy to follow. But like the parable of the sower, we, we celebrate that. People have written books about that. People preach entire message series about that. But can you imagine? It's like, so there's a guy that comes to plant. And some of the ground is good. Some of it's not so good. Some of it gets eaten by birds. Be blessed. Go, go off. What are you talking about? Are we talking about agriculture? Is that what you're doing? I thought you were a rabbi. I thought you were teaching the scriptures. What are you? And it, and it took the disciples going up like, what are you talking I mean, we get it, but explain it just so. <laughs> and I'm so grateful that Jesus explains things. Even John 1, it says that the only begotten of the Father, that no one at any time has ever seen God, but Jesus, the begotten of the Father, explains him to us. And, and maybe you, want, you, you just get things. Darwin, you just download it, and it just makes sense by the Spirit. I love when somebody holds my hand and explains it to me two or three times. Not literally holds my hand. My wife can hold my hand. I use humor because I'm self-conscious. So don't think I'm like this way all the time. I just try to cushion it. It's the sandwich, you know? Look at uh, John 16, um, verse 25. It says, these things, being the things of the kingdom of God, being the things of the way of Jesus, I have spoken to you in figurative language, an hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly of the Father. And my goodness, wouldn't you want to be in this kind of deeper project? Like, okay, we're not just talking about our feelings anymore. We're not just talking about what we think it means. But the one who actually wrote it is going to tell us exactly what it means. Praise God. Like, wow, encouraging that would be. Can you imagine reading like Genesis 37 in the story of Tamar? the worst chapter in the Bible, and Jesus just tells you what it means? Praise God. Like, that's a, like, can you imagine? Tuesday night is Nate's Deeper Project. I'll do one on Wednesday morning that Jesus does Thursday afternoon. Everybody would be at Thursday. People would take off work to have him explain the Bible this way. You're like, I still wouldn't go. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, the beauty of this is that this wasn't just a, a limited period. This wasn't just this 40 days, and now we're just going to all say, shucks, we missed it. Wouldn't it be cool to be a part of that company? Wouldn't it be cool to actually have Jesus appear in your locked room 
and, and say, peace be with you, and show holes in his hands and in his side, and people believe and celebrate and rejoice, and he explains the scriptures, and our hearts begin to burn. This wasn't an exclusive club that the disciples of the first generation belonged to for 40 days. This is actually our heritage and our inheritance as the church. If we, if we look at the way that Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit, we will be shocked, and I pray that we're shocked. Look at John 14, starting in verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. This is the, the night that Jesus is arrested. He's, he's trying to, to tie up loose ends and explain to them, I'm going to die, but I will come back. And still everybody's shocked. He says in verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I said to you. Can you imagine this relationship, just for a moment, that you could imagine that when you're reading the scriptures, when you're looking at the culture, when you're living your life, when you're going to work, you're doing your thing, you're doing family, you're whatever, that the Holy Spirit could be with you and teach you everything and to boot, remind you of what he taught you. Praise God for reminders, right? I don't remember everything I've been taught. I don't even remember everything I've said today. And I said it. I was there. But the Holy Spirit promised to come and to help and to teach. Look at the way. Later on in the same conversation in John 16, starting in verse 5, Jesus says this. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asks, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. He's addressing this misunderstanding, this hardship. It's like, I don't want you to go. And rightly so. That sorrow still kind of exists in our heart that Jesus isn't right with us like he was before. Verse 7, but I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Can you imagine? Was there somebody like on Easter Sunday or, or Silent Saturday that was thinking about him saying this? I'm really sad right now and I feel like my life is over. But he told me that it would be better if he went. How, how does that work? It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. That's easy to think, man, if Jesus was our pastor, we would be an effective church. That if Jesus was the one leading the board meetings, the board meetings wouldn't be like the worst day of the month. I'm just kidding. They're probably awesome. I don't go. But they used to be really hard back in the day. You should just see, like, Daniel, Drew, and I, like, laying down in our chairs. Like, why are we still here? It's, like, four hours long <laughs> on a Wednesday night. We're, like, spending time in prayer, and then we have to go down to this meeting and hear people argue about financial reports. It's the best. Um, but if Jesus was the pastor, then our church would be popular. Our music would be lit. Our, our evangelism would be effective. And Jesus is saying, it's actually better if I leave. Uh, are they not paying you enough? Can you just stick around? Because, like, I mean, we'll work something out. We'll take up a love offering. Come back. And just say, it's actually to your advantage. Because it makes sense that it would be to Jesus' advantage. Because he's constantly saying, you wicked and adulterous generation. How long do I have to be with you? He's not constantly saying that, but he does say that more than once. 
And so it makes sense that it's to his advantage, but what he's saying is like, it's actually your advantage, Tina, that I go away. Why? Because if I go away, I'll send you a helper, and he'll always be with you. And the Holy Spirit will teach you all things. He'll reveal to you the secret depths of God, and he will counsel you in all things. He'll comfort you in all things. He'll unite you with a person that is nothing like you and create fraternity and brotherhood where there could be only division and war. That in his invisibleness, he will be so effective. And you will experience things that you could never even imagine. This isn't to say that sometimes it doesn't feel ordinary and simple, but the Holy Spirit is real. And Jesus says that we now have a leg up in the race. We have an advantage. Can you imagine? What, what is a track event? Jack, what's a track event? 800 meter. Can you imagine... You, you show up Saturday morning to run the 800 meter and you're given an, an, an electric bicycle. Everybody else is running and you're given an electric bicycle. I am at that race. I am so excited. I ate whatever I wanted for breakfast because I'm going to win this race. Training, bah. No, I have an advantage. I, I have an advantage. I have a, a, a leg up in this thing. And all of this is framed around the idea that life isn't easy, that life is actually hard and there's sorrow and there's pain. But Jesus is saying, I have actually overcome the world. So the most scary things, I've already defeated. The most intimidating things, feel the feelings. Let it sink in. Be aware. Comfort other people. But you have an advantage. That this relationship with the scripture that, that brings out a burning heart... Not just a, an inflated mind, but a burning heart. This kind of relationship was not exclusive. This is not out of reach. And um, our church is a part of a long tradition um, that we really see come from the scriptures itself. And I don't say this to like alienate anybody. We're, we're, we're not like that. If we have appeared like that, I'm so sorry. We're not trying to uh, be elite or anything like that. But we are a part of a tradition that we see come from uh, the book of Acts, that we see from the ministry of Jesus that is now called Pentecostalism. And, and just to define that simply so you don't get scared, um, that means that we believe that the, the, the powerful works of the Holy Spirit that we see in the scriptures actually happened. So... I think a lot of people agree on that. Some people don't. And we believe that uh, it never stopped, that God still does those things, that God still heals people, he delivers people, he still gives words of prophecy and knowledge, and we can, we can see through the, the narrative of the New Testament that that is something that was for the church, that was for the growth of the church, that was for the maturing of the church, not just for the mature church. And we're a part of that tradition. But there's a significant portion of Pentecostal heritage that is, is often easily overlooked. And that is this process that we're talking about. That we don't just believe that the Holy Spirit can work in power so that way you can lay hands on a sick person and then be healed. We believe that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life to help you understand God. To help you know him. To help you make him known. That was the promise of Jesus when he said, wait in Jerusalem until you're endowed with power, is that you could be a witness to other people about who God actually is, what he's actually up to. 
And sometimes that gets pushed to the back, you know, where it's like, well, come to uh, Open Door Church and see crazy stuff, you know, like see really loud people. And it's like uh, some of you are like, I've never experienced that before. Uh, (laughs) uh, But look at this um, as we continue with Luke 24. This is verse 44. Now he said to them, these are my words which I have spoken to you while I was still with you. All the things that are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So as we're studying the scripture and we're like, this doesn't make sense. It must be fulfilled. Lord, help us to understand. Lord, help us to see clearly. And verse 45 is just bananas. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He reached inside and he turned on the light. Paul actually describes this as as there's like a veil in front of your eyes that Jesus takes away. That there are secular scholars and universities that have done incredible work with dissecting the Bible and translating it into our modern culture, but they're missing the point. That sounds arrogant, and forgive me, I don't get it, but they did, (laughs) right? That That their eyes were open. That's like Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. As he, as he met with um, the disciple, and they prayed for him, and he said, something felt like scales fell off my eyes. Like, I was, I was physically blind, but like something left, and then I could see clearly. And this may sound like a letdown because uh, Bible reading seems like a hard point to drive home. But I want to encourage you to um, summit this mindset, to look at this, this formidable foe that is understanding and knowing God and using the scripture as, the, as the, the road to do that, that you would get past Bible trivia. Because there's sometimes that people will be talking about stories in the Bible and I don't know what they're talking about. And I like to think that I read the Bible quite a bit. And I just forget things. And I don't remember. And... and uh, <laughs> Um, Tim prayed this morning, like, I, I want to be full of God, but sometimes I leak, you know, like it just doesn't stay there. And I want to encourage you to, to, to just, to, to not camp out in that mindset, but to see like, Lord, is it true? Could it be that I could devote time and attention to listening to you and it would be rewarded with your presence and with knowledge? And could that happen in the Bible? And this isn't like a choose-your-own-ending story where it's like, well, I guess I'll just start making stuff up and see if it works. No, it meant something. It was written for a reason. Jesus was able to explain to them what it meant, not what he thought it meant, not like what it meant to him, what it actually meant. And that's our aim. That's what we want, right? I tried this thing, and maybe it'll be helpful to you. I do this thing with our kids, um, that our kids are toddlers, and there's something so unregenerate about being a toddler. You know, you think, oh, your kids are little angels. Sometimes kids can be really mean and cruel. And I do this thing with my kids. I just started it recently, and I think it's actually working pretty well. I rolled down the windows in the car, and I was like, all right, take your bad attitude, throw it out the window. It's biodegradable. Don't worry about it. And they're both like, what are you talking about? And I was like, go like this. Take your bad attitude, throw it as far as you can out the window. And they do it. And I was like, all right, reach in your pocket. I put good attitudes in your pockets. Eat it. And they're laughing. And I was like, but this visualization is kind of helpful. 
you know, where it's like, I have, I, I'm a little bitter right now. I'm a little angry. Can I just take that off and put on hope? Can I just take that off and put on, like, trusting Jesus? And so what I do when I, when I come into Bible reading, by God's grace, hopefully every morning, is, is I, I, try to, I try to sit down and I, and I close my eyes. And I have this one campfire that I, that I sat at one time uh, years ago, and, and I really liked it. It's like hot sand, and, and they're making coffee and tea in the hot sand. And, and I picture myself there with Jesus. And, and Jesus is making me coffee, and it tastes really good, and he serves it in a cup. And whatever I'm reading, whether it's uh, Ecclesiastes or Matthew, whatever I'm reading, he's telling me the story. And I try to picture that. And not like in some idolatrous sort of way, like I make an image of Jesus in my mind, but it's like, Lord, if, if you're the one that wrote this, tell me the story. And sometimes it really helps, honestly. Like, I'm not just trying to explain some sort of mystical experience to you guys. Like, sometimes it really helps. But at the lowest level, what that helps me with is to, again, get past the nothingness that goes on in my brain and get into something that actually matters. Like, God, I'm not just reading this so I can impress my friends at church about the things that I can remember. I'm reading this because it's your story, and you thought it was important for me to read it. So help me. Because in my own strength, I'm not there. I, I can't do it. There's a wide river between us and the authors of the scripture. And it's a difficult bridge to build with anchors on both ends to understand rightly what the scripture is saying and not teach something that is missing the point. Lord, help me. If you want to just build the bridge, that would be awesome. But if I, if I could get in there with you, let's do it together. Let's work on this thing so that way I can actually know you rightly. And I promise you, if, um, if I have a friend, and uh, I was going to use Braden as an example, and he's not here, but um, I, I asked Braden to go to coffee with me uh, a couple of months ago, and I was just like, who are you? Like, what's your deal? And just asked him his story, kind of walked me through his life and his childhood, and, and as we've hung out more and more, I have learned little things about him, and it hasn't been like work. I've never taken notes but it's something where it's like, I love him because he's my friend. And, and we have some sort of mutual common ground, but we're, we're talking and we're spending time together. We're learning each other by just being around each other. So this isn't homework to know Jesus through the scriptures. This is friendship. Because if I were to ask you your friend's siblings' names, you'd be like, that's easy. I didn't have to write that down in a notebook. Maybe it's not. Maybe you're like, Oh, no, maybe that person's not my friend. Um, but if I were to ask you Jesus' siblings' names, it's in there. It's pretty scary. That was an example that was used on me, and everybody in the class was like, you can't say that, that's a religious spirit. He's like, why? If you have friends, then you know your friends. So why don't you stop treating Jesus like a, a genie and start treating him like your friend? That's the middle of the sandwich, I think. Um, let's talk about some takeaways. When I was a youth pastor, uh, Tate Hinger used to sit right here. And he used to always tell me, like, what, what, what are you getting at, Adam? And I was like, I don't know. The, the Bible? <laughs> Love Jesus? And he's like, can you just give us, like, a takeaway? And I was like, no. I didn't write that in here. What are you talking about? So I have a takeaway for you, okay? Number one. 
what we need to do with this information, what we need to do as we're in between and we're feeling the feelings as we're experiencing the world, what we need to do is together and personally, we need to fellowship with the Lord. That sounds like the most Christian, mayonnaise, boring answer. But trust me, we are never going to graduate from this kind of stuff. If I were to tell you what you need to go is you need to make a pilgrimage to Israel, dip yourself in the River Jordan seven times, would you be like, it's a good word, Pastor. I'll do it. Start saving up money. Let's... Why do we want to make things more complicated? If you want to have a friend, spend time with your friend. Together. Can you imagine the resource and the advantage? Not only do we have the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us, we have the written word in every language we could possibly imagine, in multiple English transla translations, we have commentaries and scholars, and we have each other. What a gift. My parents are, like, older than me, obviously. <laughs> and they, they've been following Jesus, and they've been, been eager to follow Jesus, but they still call me at, like, 6 o'clock in the morning sometimes, and they're like, so we were reading our Bibles this morning. What does this mean? And I was like, what a blessing. I don't know. No, like, um, sometimes I have the answer. Sometimes I'm like, ask your pastor. I don't know. Um, he went to college. I didn't. Um, <laughs> but like uh, that, that it's such a blessing. It's such a gift to be able to just bounce these things off of each other. Can you imagine? I was, I was talking with somebody at Deeper Project a couple weeks ago. And, and they were like being kind of shy. Like I wanted to say this thing, but I wasn't sure if it was wrong and I didn't want to be wrong. And I was like, dude, let's just be wrong. What a gift. If we just get to sit there in like a low-risk environment, nobody is like, like sitting over a tank to the abyss that the dragon's in. Like if we get one thing wrong, we're not just going to get dropped into the abyss. Do you understand? If, we're, if you're like, when, when uh, Jesus broke bread, I think it was a tortilla. And I was like, one, that doesn't matter. And two, no, it wasn't. <laughs> they talk about bread a lot in the Bible. We understand what the bread was. You were wrong, but it's okay. <laughs> You know, like, that was a really dumb example. <laughs> we don't talk about those kinds of things. But we spent a good a chunk of time, last time I was at Deeper Project, talking about how Jesus uh, was able to hide himself. <laughs> at the end of the day, does it matter? But did we grow closer to Jesus by talking about that? Did we grow closer to each other? Did we, were we a little less scared after that? I think so. So together... And personally, we need to be able to read the scripture, we need to be able to pray, and we need to legitimately listen to the Holy Spirit. Because I think, and I pray, that the gifts of the Holy Spirit that are described in the scriptures don't have to be weird and awkward and uncomfortable. But I do think that they'll come faster than we expect them to. I usually pray on Wednesday night that people would have words of prophecy. It doesn't usually happen. And I'm not telling you you have to tell somebody when they die. Please don't. But I think the Lord has encouragement for us in the spirit that we're pushing back, we're bottling up. And that's scary to me. If I've made anything clear today, I'm not a confrontational person. And I don't like, guys, the Lord has spoken to me and I've said it to someone and I was wrong and I'm still here. Jesus didn't take away my salvation. But we need to be able to trust that the Lord actually does want to grow us, that he does want to stretch us. And that will involve being uncomfortable. But if we deny the Holy Spirit its power, especially in our assembly, we're going to miss out on something really special. And again, it doesn't have to be weird. The gospel is weird by itself. We don't have to make it weird with our weirdness. 
Okay, okay. Jack, okay. Just kidding. Jack's the coolest person I know. Like cool, like even demeanor. Yeah. The second thing, I think it's up there. Yeah, it's over there on the same slide. We actually have to follow the Lord. And this may sound like, isn't that the same thing as fellowshipping with the Lord? Kind of. When Jesus spent hours talking with these disciples, then he indicated that he was going somewhere else. They didn't let him go. The second option would be to go with him, but they, they restrained him. And I think, with all due respect, I think we have done that many, many, many times, where the Lord is doing something, we just don't follow him where he's going. We were at um, this, this council last week, and, and the superintendent of, of our assembly, um, his name is Gene Roncone, he said this thing, and it just socked me in the stomach to use the language of Nate. He said, if spiritual gifts and signs don't become practical, then they are limited to the experiential. What that means is we're not just looking for God to tickle us and us to feel better. That the power of God is meant to be a witness. It's meant to reveal who he is to us and to other people. So if we're just hoarding up the presence and the power of God in our assembly and not actually reaching other people, we are missing the heart of God. That we don't want to fast forward through prayer. We don't want to fast forward through loving relationship. But if we are not letting the gifts of the Spirit, even the gift of understanding the Scriptures, translate into seeking and saving the lost, then we are not following the way of Jesus. We are following the way of comfort and therapy, not the way of Jesus. Not that there's something wrong with therapy. I think God wants to edify you and he wants to encourage you. He wants to, he wants to counsel you and comfort you. But our, our hope is that we are a part of this family business to see other people come to the knowledge of the truth. Can you imagine the, the, the sorrow of the ignorance that there's this gap between you and hope and your neighbor has directions to the bridge and they don't tell you about it. Your neighbor has revelation of how to escape a burning building, and they're not going to tell you about it. We are missing the heart of God. And I'm here with you, you guys. We played this Christian game on my birthday, and one of them was like, who is the most likely to travel across the world and not tell their neighbor about Jesus? And everyone voted for me. I voted for me, you guys. I was like, oh, that sucks. But it's true. Anyway, you don't have to spend too much time on that. Um, that there is good news. That there's good news of great joy. There's, there's edification to be had, and we have access to it. And let the Lord help us to follow him. When I think about following Jesus, I don't necessarily think this takes the same shape with every single person. And, and we talked in prayer about boldness and fearlessness. That's a big deal. It's not necessarily the absence of fear, but it's the boldness in the presence of fear. That it's awkward. Especially, like, uh, sometimes it's easier to talk to strangers than it is to talk to people that you're familiar with. And, and I remember talking to Joey one time, and we were talking about this church, and he's saying nice things about how it feels like a family and stuff. And I was like, oh, thanks. Tell, tell me more nice things. Um, and one of the things that I love about our church being like a family is that nobody is like over the top, like Dutch bros, Chick-fil-A, like super charismatic, friendly. That we're ordinary, awkward people, but we just genuinely love other people. 
And don't try to turn into another person to be bold about Jesus, but let Jesus actually translate through your personality and be bold with it. And if you're like, there is no route for me to be bold about Jesus, then we need to do some work. If there's no way that you can possibly imagine being a witness to Jesus with who you are currently, then you and I and all of us need to change. Because we are not exempt from this call. And praise God that we're not excluded. But I think there's another side to boldness. This is extra. This is on, the, on top. I'm done. We're going to take communion. We're going to go. So don't be like, like we're, we're done. We're almost there. There's another side to witnessing that I think gets underplayed because it seems like it's less effective than like, thus say the Lord, grab your head and shake it. Like, there's something else. And it's hospitality. Can you imagine a person who doesn't know hope that you can just bring them into your house and be nice to them and share with them the truth about Jesus, not in some awkward canned script, but in your life, you know, where it's like, I, I totally relate to that anxiety that you have, but I trust Jesus and I, and I hope that, that we will be delivered and I hope that there's actually a future that doesn't just hold more sorrow until one day I kick the bucket and get relieved I'm actually excited that I'm still alive today because I think Jesus has a purpose for us. That you don't have to be intimidated or afraid that you can actually bring people into your life and show them hospitality, show them love, and talk about Jesus. Niceness doesn't win people to Jesus. Lots of people are nice. But if you start with niceness, whoa, what credibility. <laughs> what credibility when you actually tell them there is only one way. When you actually are, are hospitable and welcoming and inconvenienced by people. Some of you guys should be children's pastors. What an inconvenient thing. Some of you should be work with teenagers. What an inconvenient thing. There's nothing easy about that. But then we suddenly think once somebody's an adult, then they can just kind of love themselves, I guess. We don't really have to, like, engage them. And if we want to say this kind of uh, confronting message, then we, we can't get too close to them. <laughs> but can I tell you, a... a Harsh word from a friend is better than the, the disparagement of a brother. That's from Proverbs. I don't necessarily think that fits in right here, but anyways. Um, this morning, uh, we want to take communion. And I think there's a special light. Uh, oh, yeah, would you do that? I have both of them over there if you take two and put them back there. Uh, we put up two tables, you guys. It's changing the game for taking communion. Because there's not a ton of us, but there's a lot of us for one table. <laughs> so um, we're all coming around the proverbial table, but we're going to do it on two tables. Um, so uh, I think there's a special light that we can kind of shine on this experience. Because when we're looking at communion today, I want us to take our mind back to that story thousands of years ago, the, the tension and the discouragement and the confusion that those disciples felt, and then the relief at the word of the Lord, and finally, the revelation at the breaking of bread. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to check out more of our messages, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Just search Open Door Pagosa. Our ministry is made possible by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this morning's message and want to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give and stay connected with everything we are doing as a church.